Welcome once again to the Towards Wholeness podcast, where we offer you steps that you can take in your journey towards spirit, soul, and body wholeness. My guest today is the guest that we also were privileged to enjoy a good conversation with on our last podcast, Charles Moore, who is part of the Bruderhof community. And so if you're listening to this podcast without having first heard the previous one where I chatted with Charles, I would really encourage you to go there first, in a sense, and listen to the evolution of Charles' calling as he left a seminary professorship and moved to join the Bruderhof community, uh, a community of Christ followers that was formed, in essence, out of the ashes of World War I and has continued to this day, 100 years later, to be a voice, a prophetic voice of hope and light around the world now in uh, 30 different locations. So Charles, I'm glad that you're with us today, this time to speak about what it's like actually to live in community and how rule of life informs that. So welcome once again. Great to be on and look forward to this conversation. You know, when I read your biography, it noted in your biography that you are working with a group entitled Nurturing Communities. That's its name. And so then I went to that website, and uh, it was really intriguing. The Bruderhof community is not the only community in existence. It appears that there are many communities around the country, perhaps around the world, that fall under this umbrella of nurturing communities. So can you tell me a little bit about your work with nurturing communities and how you became a part of that? Sure. Our um, communal movement has always valued the wider body of Christ. So about seven or eight years ago, coming out of the new monastic movement, Jonathan uh, Wilson Hartgrove, um, Shane Claiborne, people that we know, came up with this idea that newer, younger communities that often start out with a spurt of great enthusiasm and then, but then die very quickly, needed the help of some more established older communities. Vice versa, that some of the older communities um, might be able to benefit from the enthusiasm and new vigor of, of new ventures. What began was the Nurturing Communities Project, and now it's it's called the Nurturing Communities Network. David Jansen, who is a member of the Reba Fellowship, a Mennonite community in Evanston, Illinois, was asked to kind of oversee this. Now, this is a very informal network of communities, um, it, and I mean informal, very organic, low-tech so there might be maybe 30 communities of different shapes, sizes, and forms. You have some like ourselves that have been at it for many years with a very thick understanding of what community is about, some with a thinner understanding of community. Some are fairly new. Some are quite small. Some are in urban environments, non-urban urban environments. But we try to support one another and network together to strengthen, for the lack of a better term, life together. Some communities um, are a part of a larger congregation or identify with a larger congregation. Some are consider themselves to be a church. So you get quite a number of different kinds, but they're all Christ-centered, biblically rooted, and um, it's an attempt to support one another along the way of, of what it means to share life in Christ you know, uh, I, I just have to share with you how resonant 
that is with some of the work in which I'm involved. I run a ministry entitled Ancient Paths, where we take people out into the wild for kind of a time of solitude and fasting in order that they might find themselves deeply rooted in their identity in Christ through the spiritual practices of meditation and scripture reading, and then work on kind of redeeming their own story and their soul, and then also um, encounter what God has to say through the first book of creation. But one of the things that we do when we take people out is we show them the difference between an old growth forest and a replanted forest that has been clear cut. And in a replanted forest, you find trees of all the same height and all the same make and all the same generation even, right? Mm. They're all the same. And what uh, foresters are now discovering in recent history is that these forests are uniquely vulnerable to disease by virtue of the lack of what are now called elder trees, So in an old growth forest, you have elder trees and these elder trees that are gigantic, you know, 200, 300 out here on the West Coast, uh, there's a hemlock that my wife shows people when she leads uh, snowshoe trips that is uh, 700 years old, you know, and this tree is offloading its excess carbon through a mycelium network underground to other trees. So the young trees are actually literally receiving nutrients and wisdom from the older trees. And this speaks to, you know, the need for intergenerational ministry within a church. But I love that, that this is happening now within the communal network as well. It's like, it's like Bruderhof as an elder tree, basically. Well, that's, that's a beautiful um, image, metaphor. And, and that's what we hope. We're not experts there's lots of ways that we still need to keep growing and changing. We live in a different world than a hundred years ago. We struggle against calcifying where forms become more important than the spirit. But at the same time, you know, there is something to be said about the gift of something that um, has weathered many storms. And so it's a very mutual network. I did want to say that I mentioned or alluded to thicker or thinner forms of community. And that word is kind of a buzzword. People long for more community and so forth. But for us in our particular church community, the Bruderhof, it involves a a true common life together. So it's not just a spirit of togetherness. It is really doing life together. Anywhere from sharing our finances, possessions, our goods together together. Uh, we educate our children together. We work together, earn our money together. I would call it a thick understanding of communal life. Uh, that's us. Uh, we feel that best reflects the nature of the kingdom. But then there are others who may not be able to or have chosen not to share so much of life together. It is, though, a network where deliberate steps, intentional steps, are being taken and being lived out to do more life together and uh, as a protest to the fragmentary nature of our world today. I really love that. And it, it kind of reminds me of something that I've said sometimes in, in sermons uh, where I, I've mentioned that my sense is that we Americans are ambivalent about community. I mean, I hear all the time, 
I want community. I want community. And yet I liken it to uh, back in the day. I remember when I was in junior high going up into the high Sierras in, in California for camp, right? And in the evenings, you know, you're up at 6,000, 7,000 feet or whatever, and there'd be a campfire, and but it's cold. And so I, like, oh, I'm cold. So I move closer to the fire. But then I'm, I get too hot and I move away and then I move close again and then I move away. And this is my assessment of Americans vis-a-vis the very notion of community. We want it, but then often we approach it and embedded in community is inconvenience and accountability and loss of privacy. And then we move away. So I really did want to talk to you about how do people overcome that ambivalence when community becomes unromantic and inconvenient. And did that happen in your own story? Yeah, I, I appreciate um, using that word ambivalence because um, we're we've been programmed to be self sufficient. We have been programmed to not depend on other people, and yet we yearn to be a part of something greater than ourselves. We we yearn for relationships. Sadly, we want relationships as long as we can maintain our own autonomy. And it just doesn't work. And I think of like marriage. There, there was a lot I and my wife both gave up so that the two of us would become one flesh. And love for each other enabled that foregoing of one thing so something greater could come into being. And you can't have community without giving up the myth of expressive individualism. So some of the challenges associated with all that is our fear of one another, of being hurt. We have been taught and trained to mistrust, really, other people uh, to keep our guard up. We've been trained to pursue self-interest. Yes, not to the extent that you would purposely hurt people, but our orbit is ourselves and what benefits us. I think that we've also been trained to idealize relationships, and that's why we get so disillusioned, because we think our relationships will save us from our own unhappiness. And in community, you rub shoulders with other people just like yourself, and the glitter of image and so forth gets um, shattered. You know, we we have to basically give up the lie that we can worship God and mammon at the same time. So these are some of the obstacles. And I know for myself, a lot of um, what I had to do is not only relearn my Christianity when I became a part of the Bruderhof, not so much doctrinally, but what it really meant to live out my faith. But I I had to um, detox from a life of being a self-sufficient, independent male and learn what it might mean to be interdependent with other people towards something greater. Uh, you know, and when you use the word detox, I know when I fast once in a while, if I haven't fasted for a while and then I fast, I feel terrible for the first 24 hours or whatever, where, where there's a detox that's going on and my body's like, oh, finally I have a break and now I'm going to clean out all the sludge, but you're going to feel terrible before you feel better. Is that a common experience uh, for people moving into a community? People probably move in with a, some notion of romanticism, and then it's dashed. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of romantic notions. It can be quite exciting and refreshing. Um, and then, you know, reality sets in. Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, you know, warns against the wish dream. 
of that perfect community. And so there is a, a, a time of perhaps disillusionment. But the disillusionment, if we're really honest, is more with ourselves than with other people. We, we discover that we're not as loving as we thought we were, or as patient, or as giving, or forgiving. We're not able to keep up our image, which we have become addicted to, and the real self that we have buried underneath with our busyness and all the distractions begins to rear its head. But community is an awesome opportunity to be pruned and purified so that the false and the facade that we've often lived under and by can fall away. But it's it's not an easy process, and it can be painful. On the other hand, it can be very liberating to be able to still be loved and accepted and embraced, and, and, and you still feel like you can belong despite yourself, despite your inadequacies and weaknesses. You learn what true acceptance is, and you can begin to experience the uh, liberation from yourself and being liberated for others. So it's a both and. It's, it's like being under the surgeon's knife. It doesn't feel like it's a healing process, but it is part of the healing process, the pruning shears. But it's no panacea for sure. Well, you know, you, you mentioned there not only the, the pain of the pruning, but some of the joys that come with moving into community. And I guess I, I would anticipate that as people move into community, they move in expecting certain joys, but then there are probably unanticipated joys that they experience. Can you speak to what have been some of the unanticipated joys for you and your wife, Leslie, and others who've moved well, that, in? That's, that's a really great question. Yes, I, I can speak to that. Um, I'll just give you some anecdotes. So prior to coming to the community, I had a professional image that I had to live up to and not only live up to the expectations of others, but of myself. But to be able to be a part of a community and know that I belong and I'm accepted, not because of my education or my professional abilities and so forth, but just simply because of who I am as a person, uh, as a beloved child of God, as one who is in Christ. So when we joined the community, it took a while, but I could find joy working in our workshop, teaching children, taking care of an older person, because my identity was not in whether or not I was writing books or giving lectures or having to advance my professional career. People could see me just for who I am and value me for who I am. And that was very liberating. At the same time, there's a part of me that was kicking against that. You know, I, I, I wanted to be important in other people's eyes, but to be important in the wrong way. So a very specific example, only being in the community for a year or two, our school, our elementary school, needed a second grade teacher. And someone suggested that maybe I should give it a shot. And we talked about it. And I almost flunked second grade. Uh, and uh, I'm trying to figure out how you teach second graders, you know, Hegel and Kant and, and uh, Kierkegaard. And, and it was way beyond me. And, uh, you know, I was just not sure what I was getting myself into. But a teacher that had been in the community for 30 years just said, Charles, all you have to do is find joy in these children and love them, and it will all come out all right. Wow. And it was just such a powerful year, you know, teaching these second graders and learning from them 
And learning also that many people had told me, you know, you have this gift of teaching and which meant that, you know, you should be a professional lecturer or a a professor of some sort, but the gift of teaching can be applied in many different environments. And lo and behold, I could could enjoy teaching at that level. It it didn't have to be postgraduate students, but I had to let go of my image and I had to be willing to serve a purpose greater than myself. And this is totally that uh, that laying down our life and then finding our life, right? I mean, unless I'm willing to lay down these things that I didn't even know were idols, I, I won't really discover my truest identity and deepest joy. So I really, I really appreciate that story. I'd like to, uh, before we're able to wrap up, I'd like to talk a little bit about this notion of a rule of life. I mean, I when people ask me about rule of life in our own community. I say to them, you know, at our house, if you, Charles, came to my house for dinner and, you know, you were eating with your hands or something like that, I'd kind of look at you a little weird, but I'd say, well, he's a guest. He can eat with his hands. It's not a thing. But if you moved in, I would say to you, in our house, we use knives and forks. It's, that's just the way it is to be part of this family. That's how we taught our children. You know, we said, when you're in my house, here's the rules. This is the way we act. We don't throw food. You know, there's a curfew, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm wondering if you could talk about rule of life as it applies to community and what that looks like in your own particular community as well. Well, this is a difficult question to to answer. Many traditions have distinct practices and disciplines and so forth. Ours seems to be more seamless more organic. But there are a number of commitments that we make when we say we're all in and we're going to um, really commit ourselves to this way of life. And the first being that you are willing to serve in whatever capacity, in whatever way you can, the brothers and sisters, and whatever is needed for the good of the whole community. And so that's the starting point. You start with being at the foot of the cross and you're given a towel, and you find joy washing feet wherever there is a need. That's the starting point. That's hard. I I remember we had just joined the community, and uh, my wife and I, we shared many meals together during the week, but families also have meals in in their own family together. And uh, Wednesday evenings was usually free for, for families just to have their supper together. And there was an older gentleman in the community that needed to have a family where he could regularly be a part of. And we thought, wow, it's just the two of us will we'll enjoy a nice evening together. And we learn of that need. And we had to look at ourselves and say, hey, you know, this isn't about us. So we volunteered to have this older brother for our suppers week, um, every week for Wednesday evening. We had to do a a check on our own selfishness. So that's just one little example. So service. I think another one is what we call straight speaking in love. We have one law, if you want to call it the law of love, based on Matthew 18 in our community. And that is that we would never speak negatively about another person behind their back to anyone, including one's spouse. That if there is a problem that you had or you saw something in another person, our, our vow would be to go in humility 
to address that directly. And if, if something could not be worked through, then you go and get the help of another. So if you don't have that, you can't have joy in one another. You know, there's, a, I guess, a pledge against gossip. Do we always uphold that? No, unfortunately, but we do our best, just like we tried our best to be willing to serve wherever. But those two rules of life, if you're going to be a part of our community, that's the two-pronged aspects that that I think stand out in our life together. Would you say that most of the nurturing communities, uh, those that are under that umbrella, have some kind of a practice of rule of life? Is that a a common theme? Yeah, I would think so, yes. Many do practice particular spiritual disciplines, you know, maybe um, read the liturgy together in the morning, agree to certain practices. It varies. But I think there's a conscious effort. Um, This isn't just group living in a house or a couple of houses, there is a concerted uh, thoughtfulness about certain practices that everyone would would agree to. Yeah. That's important because it ends up kind of defining your life together. I think yeah. my theory is every family has a rule of life. They just haven't named it, you know? Yeah. It's like, right. we watch, what we do, we watch TV after dinner or we, whatever. Everybody seems to have something. And so- naming it and asking the question, are my habits reflective of the values to which I aspire in Christ, or are they just kind of choices that I've unconsciously made that are feeding the cultural narrative of consumerism? And I I really want to challenge people to swim upstream against that cultural narrative. And I think naming a rule of life, of course, can do that. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I think a lot depends on what your vision of why you're together. That influences the kind of rule of life that you may decide. And I say that because for us, uh, John chapter 17, Jesus's high priestly prayer, where he prays for his disciples and those who would believe on their word that they would be one as he and the Father were one. This prayer for unity And for us, we live in community so that we could demonstrate that unity in Christ is possible. And this is the way the world comes to know Jesus. So I think a lot of the things that we do are aimed to help facilitate, protect, deepen, and nurture our unity together. So an example of that would be when we gather together for, let's say, decision-making, we have to individually be willing to surrender our points of view to something higher, if God speaks something to the whole of our community, that we're willing to submit to God's will, not just to our preferences. You come ready to share what is on your heart and mind, but you're also willing to let that go if God leads the community in a direction that you might not initially have thought of, or you may have even not been skeptical of. It's not our right to just get our point of view across and get others to agree. It's what's really important is thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's it's God's will that matters. You know, that's such a good, such a good word and a hard word, but yet a, a, an appropriate word uh, to close on. We started our conversation in the previous podcast, and I had mentioned then at the outset that my sense is that the Bruderhof community 
exists as a prophetic witness. In other words, embedded in the culture, in many cultures around the world, there are communities that are saying what you just said, Charles, that unity in Christ is possible, that letting go of the idol of individualism is possible, that living in community is possible, using your gifts and discovering gifts you didn't even know that you had is possible. I want to encourage everyone who's listening to look at the Bruderhof community. The Plow is their publication. It's a quarterly magazine. You can find it online as well. We'll reference the website in the notes below. I want to thank you, Charles, for your investment in the larger body of Christ through this podcast. I know that you're in the midst of establishing a new community in Denver, uh, for which I pray. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, my, my pleasure. It was great to talk with you and God's blessing on your work there in Seattle and in your congregation. We really need each other and we need to remind each other where our identity and our calling really lies. So thank you for this opportunity. Well, I told uh, I told you, Charles, that uh, sometimes I teach in Colorado. And so the next time I land in Denver, I'm going to look you up and share a meal and it will be my first time uh, face-to-face within the Bruderhof community. I look forward to that, and I look forward to sometime in the future following up with a podcast once the community begins there in Denver. So thanks again. Thank you. Yeah, good. Let's let's stay in touch. Um, and likewise, if I get to Seattle again, uh, now I have another place to land. Absolutely. <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us on the Towards Wholeness podcast, and we'll look forward uh, to meeting together next time. Bye-bye.